Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Calling Tau City, turn on your radio. I know we had some words last time, but that was so long ago. I got your message. It was a little harsh, you know. It's still a little hard for me to hear. Please take it slow. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders network, featuring tales to terrify and far-fetched fables. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. I'm tuning in to your transmissions. I'm and waiting to be found. And I'm building rockets. This is the Starship Sova. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to show 552. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hope everyone is fine and dandy. You know, when I, I sit down and I press that record, I still, do you know what I mean, what, 12 years in, 13 years, still get a little flutter of excitement, man. You know what I mean? So, oh, oh, oh what was that? Big son. <laughs> haven't learned anything on the voice on the microphone there. So, anyway, main fiction. I'll tell you what's coming in, Chas. I'll tell you what's coming in this show. The main fiction is The Scars to Prove It by Joaquin Heisendermans. And it is, by God, yes, the end of the month. So, it's Mr. JJ Campanella with his science news. That is all coming to today's show. I do hope you will stick around and enjoy it. Now then, let's get... Oh, it's rather exciting. Let's get into Patreon because we were... Oh, we're still storming ahead there. Last week, we were 431. This week on Patreon, we are 434. So, a huge big thank you. And those fantastic people that are... Carlos... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Carlos, you know I'm going to butcher this. Carl, actually, Carlos sent us an email through Patreon saying he just started when, just before we started kind of announcing the names, and <laughs> oh, he knew, he knew straight away. It's not what it, it looks like, Mon Dragon, but no, nah, it's not going to. It's not going to sound like that, isn't it? Not Carlos, so Mon Dragon. <laughs> There you go, lad. You get that one. Put that one in your back pocket. Carlos, thank you so much. And Gary. Just Gary, that's all it is. I can get that one. That's no problem at all. Gary, thank you so much. And Stephen, another one, man. Spursansky. Spursansky. Stephen, is, is, is that is that the way? Let, let, do let me know. Stephen, thank you so much indeed. Mr. Stephen Spursansky. <laughs> I put myself through that because I know actually no one else knows apart from me Stephen and Carlos that I'm actually butchering them you know what I mean so I could just get away with it no one would know so so like I mentioned the main fiction is The Scars to Prove It by Joachim Heisendermans and this is an original to Starships over as well how cool is that we're starting to take on a number of, you know, originals to Starship Sofa, so that's making me very proud. Actually, <laughs> ecstatic, to be quite honest. That's excellent. 
So Joachim writes, draws and paints nearly every waking hour. Originally from the Netherlands, he's been all over the world boring people about spouting random trivia about toys, comics and film. A graduate of the Cubit School in New Jersey, he works as a graphic designer and cartoonist. His work has featured in a number of publications such as the Mad Scientist Journal and the Gallery of Curiosities and Gathering Storms magazines, and a whole load, whole load of other ones as well. He is currently in the midst of completing his first children's book, and you can find him at, and there's two links there as well, so do pop over and say hello to Joachim as well. Now this story is narrated by Mark, the encaffeinated one, who loves fiction. So much so that he's written some, such as the Parsac nominated Tainted Rose, Read quite a lot. He's got a library over a thousand half-read books and grown, and now narrates, and sometimes actually records them for others. He's found that volunteering for a dozen years in radio was a decent way to get a full-time job. There you go, everyone out there. There you go. As program, get this program director at a community radio station in Fredericton, New Brunswick, Canada. But not such a great way to finish his thesis. So he stopped at the Masters in Computer Science. Well, stopping there is pretty good, mind you. Mark, wow, man. He can be heard frequently on the chsrfm.canada or .ca and two of his shows regularly appear as podcasts. He can be found at theencaffeinated.ca and theweirdshow.com. He likes cats enough to pet them but not enough to own one. And computers, enough to own several, but never pet them. He will someday write a million words, but at this rate, that will require life extension. So he eagerly awaits the ability to upload into a computer. If that hasn't happened already, then he's only in a simulation. So, the Starship Sova is very proud to present... The Scars to Prove It by Joachim Heisendermans it was the four thousandth, two hundredth, and twelfth day of the season. He was still alive. Alive and kicking, as his dad used to say. There weren't any other people left in these hills. Just him, the other, Billy, and the other's own version of Billy, whatever its name was. Of course, those last two weren't people— but Billy was the closest thing to an actual conversation he was going to get all the way out here. Billy was watching him right now. He could feel it. That big eye of his was practically burning a hole into the back of his head. With any luck, Billy hadn't realized yet that he was already awake. William sometimes wondered how the other players dealt with the constant nagging of their versions of Billy. Hell, they might not even be called Billy. Probably something stupid, like Skippy or Mac or Archie. Sometimes on quieter days he wondered where Billy even got his name. Who chose it for him? Did it mean anything to someone? He'd ask, but he knew Billy would turn the conversation around, trying to get him to say some words for the log. That damned log. Billy was always going on and on about the log. Every single day since they first dropped him on this godforsaken rock, leaving him struggling to survive the elements and avoid the constant threat of starvation, while all Billy would go on about was that goddamn log. 
He'd try to avoid mentioning it or giving Billy an opportunity to segue the conversation back to him, saying something for it, because he just couldn't muster the energy to be interesting every day. Oh, how he hated that log. But William, he'd say, the log is for the viewers back home. Don't you want them to see how you're doing? Just think how excited they are, seeing you jumping into the fray like you do. How thrilled they'll be once you win. Don't you want them to be there with you, right along as you get closer and closer to victory? In the early days, sure, William didn't mind. It was part of the show. A log meant more viewers. More viewers meant happy producers. But now, he would have strangled Billy if the bot actually had a neck to squeeze. He hadn't gotten up just yet. There were still a few more minutes before sunup. He could stay huddled in his sleeping bag for a little while, enjoying the quiet moments before beginning his daily routine. In the early days, should he wake up before the sunrise, he'd run some diagnostics on his opponents or do an inventory check. Nowadays there was only the other to worry about, no sign of life on his motion sensor, so why not lie back and enjoy the silence while it lasted? "'Good morning, William. Happy hunting. How did you sleep?' Billy's voice screeched into his ear. It took no longer than a minute for the sound of the whirring drone to start driving him crazy. Huh, he grunted back. "'What was that? Could you please elaborate further for the audience, William? They're just dying to know.' "'I slept fine,' he said, slowly opening his eyes. The light of the sun reflected from Billy's lens, nearly blinding him. The little bot, no bigger than a blood orange, with a white chrome covering and a big red eye, hovered a few inches from his face. "'That's good, William. What are your plans for today?' "'Are you doing the log already? It's too early for the damn log,' he moaned. "'Of course not. I am just making polite conversation, William. What are your plans for today?' "'Get food. Walk around. Mainly finally kill that son of a bitch and go home.' "'How exciting, William,' Billy said. The fact that he had said the same line millions of times before wasn't too bad, but that he said it the exact same way every time— that was what drove William up the wall. By now, he had memorized every inflection on every syllable Billy used over and over again. It would take years for him to forget it once he got home. If he got home. "'How's the weather looking, Billy?' he asked. He rose up from his sleeping bag, groaning as he cracked his back. "'Today's high will be around 40 degrees Celsius, with a good chance of wind coming in from the south.' Bring water in sunblock D, and have a good day. Happy hunting. It'll be the best day of my life if I find that bastard, blow his head off, and finally leave this shithole. How exciting, William. He looked at the motion sensor. Nothing inside the 80-kilometer radius. In the early days, it would be buzzing with activity. That was back when it was near impossible to get a full night's sleep, lest you get your throat cut by an opponent. Now he'd have days go by before he even got a glimpse of the other. He was no doubt a crafty one, staying just on the edge of the sensor radius, out of his reach by a fraction. Billy? Yes, William. How's the other doing? Still out there, looking to kill you and claim the prize. Thank you, Billy. You're welcome, William. He rolled his eyes. 
there was too much other crap that required his attention, so he ignored the little drone as best he could. He peered through his binoculars. Nothing out west. South was clean, too. For a moment he thought he saw something move out east, but that was just a flag tied to the rifle and marked a grave. The cam bot silently hovered next to it, standing vigil for the dead like all the other bots. It belonged to a kid he buried a few years back. Poor guy fell down a crevice when he tried to dodge the mortar shells raining down on the field. He snapped his neck in two, but was still alive when William found him. Why he didn't kill the kid right there, he still didn't know. He stayed with him for the whole night, talking about home and other things, about the prize they'd get should they win the season. He talked about how the viewers would go crazy over seeing them exit the return pod in the docking bay at the Kennedy Center. That was the last time he actually spoke to another person. The last real conversation that didn't end with, How exciting, William! After that day, it had been just him and Billy. He'd been alone with the bot for so long, he was afraid he'd forgotten how to talk like a normal person. William looked to the north, but didn't see anything there either, just sand and some empty shell casing rolling in the wind. Maybe the other wasn't up yet, or maybe he moved around before sunrise, staying out of sight, or maybe... Billy, if he was hurt or dead, you'd tell me, right? Billy hovered closer to his face. In that same overtly happy tone, he said, Of course, William. You'd be the first to know. You'd be the winner now, wouldn't you? I would never keep something like that from you. Huh, William grunted. He'd been packing up his rifle, the last of his grenades, his sleeping bag, and what little food he had saved. He'd go hunting for food, but then he'd be setting himself up for a shot right between the eyes. No, he was too close to the prize to get careless now. So damn close. He'd eat later. He was bound to find something that died last night, which might still have some meat left on it. Time to go, Billy, he said to the little ball hovering around him. Where are you headed, William? Billy asked, hovering about a half a foot behind him. Last time we spotted him, he was headed north. Odds are he'll still be there, holed up in some ditch with eyes to the south. So we're heading east and going around the mountains, so we'll end up on his rear. I'm sure that strategy will work. How exciting, William, Billy said. It was not the first time Billy told him his battle plans were good, which, coming from him, meant absolutely nothing. Back in the early days of the hunt, William would actually believe Billy when the bot told him whether a course of action was wise or not. Wasn't that the point of having Billy around, to keep him alive? Tactical support in unknown lands? An ally by his side? No, it wasn't. He learned that the hard way. Not a day goes by that he didn't feel the shooting pain running down his back, the small shards of iron scraping against his spine, letting him know they're still there and how close they were to crippling him. He remembered lying there, bleeding in the sand, gasping for air as he climbed out of the crater the shell left him in, his right leg still smoking as the pain seared through his body. He remembered being jumped by a crazed opponent, ears still ringing at a pitch he doubted he'd ever hear again how he choked a man with his bare hands, 
even as that poor bastard dug his knife deeper into William's shoulder, how his mouth filled with the taste of copper and ash, hearing the man's veins in his head pop as William squeezed the life out of him. And all the while, Billy hovered above him, asking how he felt and telling him how exciting everything was. He nearly died that day, rolling in the dirt, bleeding out, and giving into that primal rage, while that little shit kept on shooting footage for the show. Billy didn't care if he lived or died as long as the people back home got their entertainment. He'd grown to hate Billy, or perhaps not really hate Billy itself, but what he represented. He was audience zero, the first one to see everything and comment on it. It was Billy who sent every moment back to the station so the happy masses back home could watch him struggle for his life. Aired every weekday between 5 and 6 p.m., no matter what happened, Billy would be there to record it and add his little commentary. That wasn't why he despised Billy, though. William could push himself past his disdain for the audience on Earth. It was that tone in Billy's voice he hated the most, that cheerful, shitty tone. He could never pin down whether it was sarcasm or just flat-out mockery. It was the type of tone you got when someone was needling you about everything you did, making you second-guess your every move. That couldn't be his plan, right? Billy was just a ball of wires and circuits with a shit attitude. He just happened to be custom-tailored to sound like an asshole. He didn't know better, right? Some son-of-a-bitch back home programmed him to be an annoying little shit like that. The same bastards who ran this show and put him down here. Right? He looked around. The sun was getting high. He was hoping to reach the foot of the mountain before noon. He ran, but the gear and his own fatigue slowed him down. He felt like he should have eaten more, but he needed to save what was left for after dark. With any luck, there'd be something edible on the mountain. Some moss, maybe a bug or two. "'How much longer will you walk, William?' Billy asked. He tried not to talk and run at the same time, but Billy repeated the question five times before he finally gave in. "'I'm... Going to keep going to the mountain. Excellent idea, William. That will make for some great images. The crowd will love it. That's what it all boiled down to. Good shots of the hunt for thrilling entertainment. He often wondered about the show's technical details, stuff of which he knew nothing. Did they edit the show? Perhaps, as there would be long stretches of time when no one was killed or maimed, that would make for boring-ass programming. But how much did they add? How much would they leave out? Did Cynthia and Kylie see him at his worst? Did they see him beat another man to death with a rock? He shuddered at the idea of them watching him at his lowest, his most animalistic, right in their own living room. He did it for them. They were the only reason he signed on for this damn show. The prize money would be enough to pay their debts and hospital bills. If he won, there might even be enough left for Kylie to go to college. Hell, she could even go to a college of her choice, instead of the supplementary school she was assigned to when she was four. She could choose her own life, instead of working herself to death in the engine rooms of a level 20 cruiser, all from the prize money alone. Previous winners got themselves marketing deals and licensing agreements, 
one guy who was either the winner of the sixth or seventh season, he'd forgotten which, got an acting career out of it. All you had to do was win this damn game. "'What will you do once you find your last opponent, William?' Billy asked with enthusiasm. "'Asked him to braid my hair or tie bows in my beard,' he scoffed. "'What do you think I'm going to do?' "'It's not up to me to come up with scenarios for your victory, William. "'But don't you think the audience is curious what your strategy will be?' "'I don't have time for this, Billy,' he sighed. "'Just a few words.' People back home are just dying to hear what you have planned once you complete your march up the mountain. I have no idea what I'm going to do, really, he sighed. I just need to kill the other one so I can go home. Don't forget the prize, William, Billy chimed in with that happy tone of his. It's quite the sum. Any plans for what you're going to do with all that money? He gritted his teeth. He'd lost count of how many times Billy had asked him that same question. It was perhaps the most frustrating part about Billy. He wasn't actually having a real conversation with him, but reciting a series of set questions was maddening. I'll need to win first, okay? And I've told you my plans, Billy, but God damn it, I need to win this first. I understand. How exciting, William! He walked on, closely followed by the little ball. He inched closer to the mountain as the sun rose in its zenith. No signs of food, and he was running out of shadows to hide among. It was then he spotted something up ahead on the ground. It was an indentation, and not one made by him. A footprint in the dark clay of the earth, the first sign of the other he'd seen in some time. It was a real sign, at least and not a small dot darting into the shadows across the horizon. The other was near. William could feel it. It was no time to get sloppy. The last two kills he made weren't idiots either. They'd laid traps for him. He still had a piece of a nail stuck in his knee, a leftover from a shrapnel bomb the last guy had planted for him. Getting this far into the show meant that you had to have a few tricks up your sleeve. Now it was just him and the other. He continued on, pretending he had missed the footprint. It was all part of the tactic. Keep on moving. Get the other one to follow you. Or, to be more precise, get him to think he's on your tail. Once William managed that, and the other was forced to look for his tracks, he'd loop back around in a fishhook pattern and end up on the other's rear. He'd done it three times, twice with success. The third opponent he'd tried this trick on got lucky. That one got the drop on him and pinned him behind a rock. If William hadn't still had that grenade, or hadn't thrown it at just the right angle, he'd be dead now. "'William, what are you doing now?' Billy asked. "'Just looking for tracks. Can't find any yet,' he said. "'How exciting, William!' Billy replied, too loud for comfort." In the early days of the season, there were many times when Billy nearly gave away their position. It was worse when Billy loudly recapped his strategy, giving the others valuable intel. There was that one guy who followed him through the canyon, listening in on each conversation and learning his way around the traps William had set. The bastard nearly got him. He'd pinned William down with the rifle fire, then lobbed grenades at him, 
William had been damned lucky that one grenade blew up early, taking the guy's hand and face with it. The knife handled the rest. After that, he tried to stay as quiet as possible. No more talking to Billy in the open. No more trying to be entertaining to the crowds back home. No more messages for his family. It was a kill-or-be-killed world out there, stuck on this miserable rock. William had decided there was no way he was going to die here. Not like this, and certainly not with all that prize money waiting for him. He had just married Cynthia, his wife of now twenty-two years, when the show first began hosting auditions for contestants. He was called the Ultimate Clash Extreme back then, before they shortened it to UCX. They were looking for anyone who had mastered a dangerous skill. If you could point a gun or swing a hammer, you were in. The more bloody and dangerous your past, the better. The game was simple, really. You just had to be the last survivor, king of the hill. Though in this case, it was king of the satellite moon of DDF-12, a desolate rock orbiting a large sun with a breathable atmosphere, some minor wildlife, twenty-one hours of daylight, and little to no rainfall. It was worthless for agriculture, but perfect for running around the dunes and canyons trying to kill other people. The first season lasted two years, ending with a ratings-busting three-way showdown. Two MK-X launchers and one missile left between the last two contestants, one thermal charge that one of them happened to miss, and twelve billion viewers glued to the screen. They cheered as the finalist stumbled out of the crater that the three explosives created, the sun rising behind him. What an episode! What a show! He'd be damned if he could even remember the first winner's name. Only diehard fans bothered to remember details like that. The losers were just numbers, or that guy who died in such and such way, if even that. Blown to shreds, their remains turned to dust and left to dance in the winds of an empty planet. Yet every season ended up having more turnouts for the contestant auditions than the last. He remembered laughing at them as he saw them in the ads and the previews, climbing over each other and trampling people under their feet for a chance to play the most violent game in the collective. What a bunch of rubes. You'd never catch him throwing his life away for some quick cash. Not in a million years. Of course, that was before Kylie was born. It was before she was diagnosed with Tezuka syndrome, and they put her on permanent life-support stasis, which didn't come cheap. He and Cynthia had sold everything they owned that was worth a damn, and had still come up short. That was when the allure of the six hundred million Europa prize money became too much to say no to any more. When he met with the producers, they were very impressed with his service record. They had never had an applicant who served with the 180th. When he showed him his tag of valor he got during the Kennerhold campaign, as well as his rebel kill count, he knew his participation was in the bag. There was always room for a tried-and-true Marine, and he was off to the arena within days. DDF-12 was nothing like Kennerhold, nothing like Geiger Hill, either. Those were actual battles during an actual war, 
a cause you could believe in and be proud to kill and die for. Battle with a purpose. This, this was madness under a scorching sky, with kids so terrified or hopped up on dren caps that they just ran around, screaming and shooting at everything that moved. The thrill-seekers were the first to go, as always, running into the line of fire, thinking they were bulletproofed or something. Next were the morons who thought this was going to be easy. Those were the ones who'd never spot a live grenade until it's already blown their asses off. Most of them died screaming, begging to go home or crying for their mothers. After that, all that was left were the experienced veterans, the psychos, and those who were so desperate for cash they'd endure anything. William counted himself among two of those, being on his way to becoming the third as well. While he never assumed this game would be easy, he'd never dreamed he'd be stuck on this rock for as long as this. With an influx of more experienced players with every show, each season had become longer and longer. It was the sun's reflection in the other's scope that saved his life. Had he reacted a second later, the contents of his head would have been splattered against the dirt. As it was, the bullet zipped over his head and smashed into the side of the mountain. Hollow point, fifty cal, maybe. The impact brought down pounds of dirt and clay on him. He'd be puking and coughing up sand for days, but at least now the advantage was his. He knew the other's location. A few more shots rang out. William ran for cover. Peering out from behind the rocks, he saw a figure in a large poncho, fabric wrapped around his head, and goggles over his eyes to shield himself from the sand. The enemy stopped firing. Now was his chance to sneak in closer. As long as he stayed quiet. "'What are you going to do, William?' blared Billy out. The enemy immediately spotted the bot and opened fire on William's position. He cursed his stupid cam-bot, who hovered above him without a care in the world. "'You stupid piece of scrap! Will you shut up? I'm trying to get up there in one piece!' "'How exciting, William!' Fishhook time. He dropped the many charges he made a few months ago out of some scrap he scavenged from some of the other contestants' bodies. Spouting light and some non-lethal sparks, these were good for kicking up dirt. Perfect for creating cover. The other was shooting blind now. His rounds hit the dirt, kicking up even more dust for William to hide behind. Billy took a hit, too, but that force field of his was not going to get breached any time soon. He knew that all too well. Nearly killed himself that time Billy pushed him too long about the log, and the shot he fired to the little ball ricocheted back and nearly took his head off. William escaped the dust cloud, carefully running behind the jagged brown rocks. He hoped Billy's presence wouldn't give his position away while he made his way behind the enemy's back. This was the last one left to kill. He couldn't screw up now. He was too damn close to the prize. Another shot. This one hit a rock a few meters back. Did the enemy spot him? The window to strike was closing, quickly. More recklessly, he bolted up the hill, doing his best to keep his head down. If he was going to make it, he'd need to distract the other. With one more charge left, William heaved it over the hilltop with all his strength. It went off, followed by another shot from the other's rifle. Good. He was distracted. This was it. 
William pulled out his knife and leaped out into the clearing. Without a word, William lunged at the other, plunging his knife downward. His opponent managed to block the strike and rammed his arm against William's throat. William pressed his entire body weight down, pushed the knife closer and closer to his enemy's goggles and tapped the sharp point against scratched glass. A swift jab from the other's knee and William keeled over, grasping onto his crotch while he wailed. With all his might and tears in his eyes, he ignored the pain and stood up, rushing toward the other. Had he not been distracted by the blow to his balls, William might have seen his enemy go for the pistol. Shots were fired. Bullets danced through the air, taking a piece of William's shoulder with them. He bit through it, breaking two teeth in the process. He tackled the other, pressed them both down in the dirt. His face met a gloved fist. He could feel his jaw crack, but he pushed on, grasping the enemy by the wrist that held the gun. He took every punch the other threw at him and narrowly avoided the stray shot past his head, feeling his left eardrum shatter. The other pressed his gun against his hip and fired his last round into William's flesh. The pain was unbearable. His strength was about to give out. He'd be at the other's mercy. He was going to lose this fight. Then a name popped up in his mind. Kylie. With one last roar, William threw his arms in the air and plunged the knife down, striking his enemy right underneath the larynx. Tiny spatters of blood hit his face. He gasped, astonished at what he had done. He won. He actually did it, although at a heavy cost to both himself and the other. Was this it? Somehow he'd assumed there would be more to it. This anticlimax, a quick knife to the throat, felt empty. Emptier than their battlegrounds had been. His face. William had to see the other's face. He'd swore he would look the bastard in the eye once he'd won. He reached over and pulled the goggles, stained with blood and dirt from his head. The bandages fell off, revealing a long tuft of red hair. A woman, no older than twenty-two, stared at him. She was practically Kylie's age, if he'd had to guess although her time in the game had left its toll, as she could have passed for much older. Her lips were cracked. Her eyes were a deep green. She was beautiful, crying softly as the blood seeped from her throat. She tried to speak, but no words escaped her moving mouth. "'Shh, don't talk,' William whispered. He held her close, cradling her head in his arms. It's all right. It's all right. When he brushed her hair aside, he could feel her hand pressed against his cheek. I'm sorry, he muttered. I'm so sorry. I don't know. Why, why did we? I'm so sorry. A drop of salt water hit her face. For a brief moment, no longer than a heartbeat, he believed he saw a hint of a smile. Then her hand fell to the dirt. She felt heavier in his arms as the light in her eyes flicked out. It was over. He beat them all. He beat the very last. William didn't even know her name. The other's Billy 
or whatever it was called, began to scan its contestant. A red light flashed along with a deep beeping noise, meaning a negative on life signs. Like all the others before it, the cam bot switched to stationary mode, hovering quietly next to the corpse of his charge. Her red hair danced along a gust of wind. William covered his eyes to hide his tears from the camera. When Billy began playing the fanfare soundtrack, he knew it was officially over. He had won. "'Congratulations, William. You are this season's winner. How exciting!' "'Yeah. Yeah, you're right,' William chuckled. "'For once. You're right.' Link up with home base will commence. We will proceed with the final transmission and begin preparations for the award ceremony. Is that all right with you, William? Yes, Billy. I'd love that. How exciting! The drone whirred and swirled about, finding a stable signal. William watched, calming himself down and blowing the snot from his nose. He should try to look presentable for Randy Ortega, the show's host, There'd be a quick interview, and he could say some words before the dropship would come and get him. It was over. Billy's body popped open, revealing a black screen. The image stabilized quickly, but William didn't see anyone. There was a desk, covered in quick-pack noodle cups and folders, with an empty chair behind it. Uh, M, uh, hello, he said tapping Billy's screen. Anyone there? Nothing. Not a soul responded. William tried again, with the same results. Nearly four minutes passed before he finally saw a man walk by. Hey, excuse me, hello, can you help me? The man stumbled back, looking confused at the gruff-looking man on screen. Ahem, hello? he said. Who's this? Who's the... William huffed. Who are you? Where is everybody? Where's Randy Ortega? Randy Ortega? the man asked. What signal you're broadcasting on? I don't recognize this line. It's my, uh, I don't know, DXGH something? The serial number got scratched off. It's my cam bot. He's sending this out. Wait, are you on a show? What's the name of your show? I'm on DDF-12, competing in UCX-14. Where is everyone? UCX-14, the man said. He began rummaging through some folders. When he found what he was looking for, his face turned as white as a sheet. Oh, oh no, did, did didn't anyone tell you? He asked. Tell me what? What is going on? Uh, stay on the line. I'll get someone. Oh, man. Just, just stay there, all right? The man vanished from the little screen. William broke out in a cold sweat. What was going on? This wasn't anything like they promised it would be. He'd seen it so many times before. Why wasn't there a crowd cheering him on? What was that guy babbling about? When the man returned, he was joined by a woman and an older man. They looked just as astonished as the guy who had collected them when they saw William on the screen. 
They mumbled nervously among each other. William picked up, How did this happen? And what do we tell him? Which only made him more anxious. What's going on? he asked. The older man cleared his throat, trying to seem as calm as he could. Um, well, I guess there's no easy way to say this, uh, but the show you were competing on uh, was cancelled. Cancelled? William gasped. He felt his heart sink into his boots. What? What happened? The three gave each other more awkward glances. The woman cleared her throat and said, Ratings dropped after the first year, and lost our main sponsor, so the network cancelled the show. Did no one come and pick you guys up? She turned to the older man and hissed something that sounded like, Tell you about subcontracting to low-end transport? William felt cold and began to shake. What about the prize money? I need that money. I won. The others are dead. I won. Look, we're really sorry, but there is no prize money. There's no budget. We didn't even know the system was still running. They were supposed to shut down all transmissions and cambots. Things must have gotten screwed up when the new shows were greenlit. New shows? William asked. I don't care about new shows. What about me? What about the money? Like we said, there is no money, said the woman. The best we can do is give you a rewards card of value of five hundred Europa and a shuttle to pick you up and bring you home. But what about my daughter? I needed the money for her treatment. Is she all right? Tell me she's all right. The three said nothing. They avoided looking at William, trying to act like they were distracted. The woman finally broke the silence after a minute or two, saying, We'll get you on that ship. Stay put, and don't worry. We'll only charge you for the refuel, all right? See you in a bit. Before William could say anything else, the screen went black. Billy hovered closer to him, getting some grade-A footage of William, tears streaming down his face. Do you have anything you wish to say to the people at home, William? A primal roar thundered out of William's throat. He grabbed his rifle and slammed the butt against Billy. The bot's force field took the impact, and Billy bounced right back up to take a second hit. He couldn't break the bot no matter what he threw at it, but he didn't care about that. William stopped caring about anything. All that was left was his hatred. He hated Billy. He hated this rock. He hated what it made him become. Kylie... He gasped. Oh, my baby. What? Where? Oh, God damn me. God damn me. William roared as he sobbed heavy tears beside the body of the nameless young woman. Together, the last players in a pointless battle laid out in the dirt. Contestants in a game that ended without anyone sounding the bell. William cried. He cried deep sobs of unabashed anguish. They left him with nothing, nothing to prove his victory but the scars on his body. "'How exciting, William,' said Billy. And there you go. 
No, we get copyright ears, Joachim, Joachim, thank you. Man, yes, get on that keyboard and get writing again. Thank you so much indeed, sir. Thank you. And Mark, get that coffee drunk and just keep on. What a voice, man. It just like strokes the ears in the nicest possible way. Thank you so much. So like I say, it is. It's the end of the month and we have Mr. JJ Campanella, who's sounding a lot better than the last time. Jim, sir! Greetings and Huluvian protentations, my retrotastically fried jellion listeners. And welcome to this August 2018 Science News Update. I'm your host for this micronically Brodignabian science podcast segment, Jim Campanella. Okay, I don't know what the weather has been like this month where you are. But it has been horrendous in New Jersey, USA, and I think we have broken the record quite easily for more days over 90 degrees Fahrenheit. I know you Arizonans are laughing at our wimpiness, but throw in humidity of over 70% most of the time, and it has felt like the inside of an armpit for the last month here. If you are not a big believer in global warming, then the last month will make you one. I was 400 miles north of home in Montreal at the end of July at a plant biology conference, and I was amazed that it was no cooler up there than it was farther south. I have to say that I'm getting worried. It didn't help that half the symposia that I heard up in Montreal had to do with how plant biologists will need to alter crop genetics in the future to better deal with world climate change. It's a problem. So let's get on with tonight's rambling entertainment. Where shall we go from here? Let's start off with idiots and science. Yes, it is not quite the idiot scientist of the month, but it is sort of in the same neighborhood. Kind of almost. So I've mentioned previously that I have a 3D printer, which I've used to print useful things around the house, like sink stoppers, a new handle for my snow shovel, And I've also printed some sort of silly stuff, like a full-size replica of Han Solo's DL-44 blaster. I have that on display in my office at work. It took me a month to put it all together and paint it and make it pretty much look like Han's gun. It's a model. No, it doesn't fire or have any components to fire a bullet. Now, if you're not from the U.S., there has been a major controversy here over the last several months of whether or not it should be legal to make plans for actual firing 3D-printed guns available on the Internet. The topic of DIY firearms has exploded into the mainstream recently after the Trump administration reached a settlement to allow crypto-anarchist, I love that, crypto-anarchist, and Texan Cody Wilson to upload 3D firearm blueprints online. The court decision received an immense amount of pushback by politicians and gun control advocates. And a handful of states have filed lawsuits to keep the 3D printable gun blueprints off the internet. I spoke to a friend who is a policeman, and I asked him what he thought, and he was not worried. He said that anything printed would, A, only fire one bullet at a time like a musket, and B, probably blow up in the hands of anyone stupid enough to make one. I suspect he's probably right in both instances. At any rate, he said plastic guns were not high on his agenda. We had a picnic last week at my home, and 
Whenever anyone saw anything in my house 3D printed, they would immediately ask if I'd printed a 3D gun yet. Partly in jest, and partly seriously, I think. I suppose that the peril mentality is starting to set in. I suspect in years to come it will only get worse as 3D printers are able to print in multiple materials and make structures with greater and greater detail. It isn't going to be long before actual guns will be printable, a la the recent Lost in Space reboot or J.J. Uh, Abrams' horror SF movie, The Cloverfield Paradox. Both of those had actual 3D printed guns. And some futurists are suggesting that 3D printers in a 100 years will be able to put together structures atom by atom and literally make just about anything. At any rate, back to guns and idiots. Australia has embarrassed itself with the following story. A pop culture fan and cosplay enthusiast from Sydney, Australia, is facing a possible jail sentence for producing 3D printed replica guns. A few months ago, 28-year-old hobbyist Sai Sen Sun was arrested for advertising an imitation weapon for a million dollars on Facebook. Sun pleaded guilty to a handful of charges, including possession of 3D printable gun blueprints, manufacturing a pistol without a proper permit, and also possession of an unauthorized pistol. However, he claims that he only produced the replica firearms to use them as cosplay props. Sun said at his sentencing hearing, quote, With 2020 hindsight, I just realized how silly, idiotic, stupid, and naive my actions were. I could not even begin to contemplate that a hobby would land me in such strife, unquote. Now, despite the nasty charges, Sun only made replicas, and none of them would shoot. Guns he made included a P-90 submachine gun from the Stargate TV show and a uh, MA-5C rifle from the video game Halo. Although he admits to being aware that his cosplay weapons were possibly illegal to produce, he rationalized his actions by the fact that the weapons were incapable of firing a projectile. Which seems perfectly reasonable to me. I would be pretty damned upset if the police came and arrested me for making a copy of Han Solo's blaster with a solid plastic barrel. As for the million-dollar asking price of his replicas on Facebook, Sun states he never expected to sell the props for such a high cost. He just wanted someone to acknowledge his work. Yeah, right. Well, he got acknowledgement. Not the kind that he wanted, though. Now he's gained recognition for being the first person in New South Wales, and as far as I know, the first person in the world to ever be charged with possessing blueprints to manufacture non-functioning firearms. The prosecutor for the case, Stephen Mackin, said that Sun's crimes are serious because the guns could still be used in a serious crime even though they were fake. Really? Come on, seriously? So that means if you carve a replica gun out of a bar of soap in Australia and you paint it black, it will be illegal because it could be used in a crime? Because it looks like a gun? Has the world gone completely insane? So here is the serious question. At what point does a 3D printed replica go beyond cosplay? and become dangerous, as that Australian prosecutor said. Okay, yeah, Sun made a stupid decision 
by publicizing his 3D creations on Facebook and saying they were for sale. But does this poor schmuck deserve jail time for manufacturing and attempting to sell 3D printed guns that look realistic but aren't actually lethal in any way? Okay, fine. Fine, Australia, yes. There's no denying that a weapon doesn't need to be functional to be used in a crime. A criminal with bad intentions could easily use a realistic-looking gun replica to inspire fear in his victims. But what does that mean for a cosplay enthusiast whose favorite character is known for packing heat? Does this mean that going to an SF convention in Sydney, you would be a complete idiot to be wearing that DL-44 blaster because you'd be thrown in jail? I have read that Australia has become one of the most proactive countries when it comes to creating laws that criminalize 3D-printed guns and CAD models. At least, at the moment, they go way, way farther than the U.S. has yet to go with their anti-3D gun laws. But frankly, I believe that the case against Sun is taking the 3D-printed gun frenzy a step too far. I, I don't think that a cosplay enthusiast should be punished for his realistic-looking 3D-printed prop guns. Now, you could argue that my rant is science or not, but I think that because many of you are cosplayers and many more make replicas like my DL-44, you may find the story quite applicable to your lives. Okay, let me get off the soapbox. Let's go into an entirely different direction with the first story of the evening. Let's go to Mars. We have two major stories on the Red Planet this evening, and they've both come out in the last month. The first story has to do with the discovery of a massive Martian lake on the surface, something that many believed was not likely or possible. A Mars orbiter has detected a wide lake of liquid water hidden below the planet's southern ice sheets. There have been much-debated hints of tiny, ephemeral amounts of water on Mars before, but if confirmed, this lake actually marks the first discovery of a long-lasting cache of liquid. Dr. Roberto Orese of the National Institute of Astrophysics in Bologna, Italy, and his colleagues reported on July 25th in Science that the lake is about 20 kilometers across, but the water is buried beneath about a kilometer and a half of solid ice, Orise spotted the lake by combining more than three years of observations from the European Space Agency's orbiting Mars Express spacecraft. The craft's MARSIS instrument, which stands for Mars Advanced Radar for Subsurface and Ionosphere Sounding, aimed radar waves at the planet to probe beneath its surface. Repeated passes by this ice-penetrating radar beamed down from the Mars Express Orbiter, revealed a hidden lake on Mars. As those waves passed through the ice, they bounced off different materials embedded in the glaciers. The brightness of the reflection tells the scientists about the material doing the reflecting. Liquid water makes a brighter echo than either ice or rock. Combining 29 radar observations taken between 2012 and 2015, the Marsus revealed a bright spot in the ice layers near Mars's south pole, surrounded by much less reflective areas. Orise considered other explanations for the bright spot, such as radar bouncing off a layer of carbon dioxide ice at the top of the sheet. But 
he decided that those options either wouldn't produce the same radar signal or were too contrived to be physically likely. And that left, of course, one option, a lake of liquid water. Orsay says, quote, On Earth, nobody would have been surprised to conclude that this is water, but to demonstrate the same on Mars was much more complicated, unquote. Orsay's data suggests that the lake is probably not pure water. Temperatures at the bottom of the ice sheet are around minus 68 degrees Celsius, and pure water would freeze there, even under the pressure of so much ice sitting on top of it. But a lot of salt dissolved in the water would lower the freezing point. Salts like sodium and magnesium and calcium, which have been found elsewhere on Mars, they may be helping to keep this lake as being liquid. Orsay says that this is a big find in more than one way. Quote, Though the newly discovered lake's depth is unclear, its volume still dwarfs any previous signs of liquid water on Mars. The lake has to be at least 10 centimeters deep for Marsus to have noticed it. That means it could contain at least 10 billion liters of liquid water, unquote. So could there be any Martian life in that lake? Could there be some sort of bacteria, Martian bugs alive in there? Well, there are two problems with life in that puddle. Problem one is the temperature. And the temperature for cutoff for most terrestrial life is about minus 40 degrees Celsius. And that's pretty darn cold. We're talking even colder here. I mean, that Martian ice sheet is about minus 68 degrees Celsius, as I said. Very cold. Colder than any environment on Earth where any biologists believe life could either metabolize or replicate. The second problem is the salt. Yeah, there's probably lots of salt in that lake. It ensures that the water stays liquid at that low temperature, but you need to have a disgustingly high level of salt in there. Mind you, we do have bacteria on Earth. They're called halophiles that can survive under extreme salt conditions. But the high levels of salt combined with the cold... I'm not sure that any organism can evolve to that state. I mean, you're talking about extreme extremophiles. An extremophile is an organism that lives in extreme condition. You're talking about two extreme conditions here, and I'm not sure what could survive under those conditions. I guess we're just going to have to wait to find out about life until a new probe is set up just to visit that Martian lake. The hard part with that is going to be that if anything is alive down there, it will be under meters of ice. That means drilling will have to occur in the ice to get down there, and that will bring up all sorts of problems on its own. So we have a second Martian story then. Well, some scientists are now speculating that it may be literally impossible to terraform Mars. Why? it's not quite so easy to explain. I mean, terraforming on Mars has been a dream that has pervaded SF for years. The idea has always been thought to be doable and pretty straightforward, but apparently it's now thought to be kind of neither. The consistent idea has been to make Mars more like Earth by raising both its temperature and pressure by adding an atmosphere made of greenhouse gases. We know that greenhouse gases trap heat, and yes, those are the, ironically the same ones that are making our summers so unbearable. 
The only ones present on Mars in any significant amounts are carbon dioxide and water vapor, and both of those are pretty much frozen at the moment. Most planetary scientists agree that if enough carbon dioxide were released into the atmosphere, we could warm up Mars in about a 100 years once we start. Easy peasy, right? No. The problem is the amount of CO2 that actually is present on Mars. Doctors Bruce Joukowsky at the University of Colorado and Christopher Edwards at Northern Arizona University reported in Nature Astronomy last month that there is simply not enough carbon dioxide that can be found on Mars to have any greenhouse gas effect. They used results from several spacecraft to build an inventory of all the carbon dioxide on Mars to figure out whether, if we moved all of it from the ground into the atmosphere, we could create high enough temperatures and pressures for life. Joukowsky says, quote, Right now, Mars has an atmospheric pressure of about 6 millibars, which is tiny compared to the one bar at sea level on Earth. We would need something like a million ice cubes of carbon dioxide ice, which are a 1,000 kilometers across, in order to get to one bar. At one bar, the temperature would be just over 0 degrees Celsius, allowing liquid water and thus life on the surface. The atmosphere wouldn't be breathable, but humans could get by with breathing masks, not full spacesuits, and plants could grow freely, slowly building up oxygen over the course of centuries, unquote. However, Joukowsky and Edwards found there's probably only enough carbon dioxide in the polar ice caps of Mars and dust and rocks to raise the pressure to about 20 millibars at most. So we can't terraform Mars with existing technology because there simply isn't enough carbon dioxide there. Tchaikovsky is quick to point out that it's not as bad as all that. Quote, it's not that terraforming itself isn't possible. It's just it's not easy as some people are currently saying. We can't just explode a few nukes over the ice caps, unquote. Why explode nukes over those precious ice caps that I spoke about in the last story? Well, because there may be hidden reservoirs of carbon deep under the surface that could make the job easier. Some people suggest the easiest way to get at hidden CO2 under the surface is with big bombs, but no one has any idea if those hidden reservoirs even exist. Joukowsky and Edwards say they don't. Joukowsky says that without the CO2, we have to come up with other ideas for warming Mars. He says that without enough carbon dioxide, we would have to warm up Mars some other way, perhaps by making chlorofluorocarbons or bombarding the planet with comets or asteroids. Which does not sound that easy. And it still may not be enough to truly make Mars a home for humans. Uh, for that, we need nitrogen. And we're not sure how much nitrogen Mars has. Tchaikovsky finishes with, Quote, if there's not enough carbon, terraforming will take thousands of years or more, but it's still possible. If there's not enough nitrogen, you are in much bigger trouble. You need Star Trek levels of technology to get that. Warp drives, tractor beams. You will need to pull nitrogen from the atmosphere of Jupiter and actually bring it to Mars. And that is going to be quite a challenge, unquote. Okay, next story. The next story is about as far from Mars as you can possibly get. 
Yes, it's about beef jerky. Now, I love me some beef jerky. It's convenient on hikes or long car drives or when you simply don't have time to get lunch at work. I have never thought that eating beef jerky could drive you insane, though. Dr. Robert Yolkin of Johns Hopkins reported last month in the Journal of Molecular Psychiatry that eating jerky may cause psychiatric disorders. The article is entitled, Nitrated Meat Products Are Associated with Mania in Humans and Altered Behavior and Brain Gene Expression in Rats. Yolkin studied the dietary habit of more than a thousand people with and without psychiatric disorders, and he found a link between eating nitrated cured meats, such as beef jerky and meat sticks, and episodes of mania, a serious psychological disorder that is one of the defining characteristics of bipolar disorder. The work showed that people who were hospitalized for an episode of mania were more than three times more likely to have eaten nitrate-cured meats than those without a history of a serious psychiatric disorder. Yolkin says, quote, We looked at a number of different dietary exposures, and cured meat stood out. It wasn't just that people with mania have an abnormal diet. Further experiments showed that healthy rats fed a diet containing nitrate-cured meats or added nitrates triggered mania-like hyperactivity within just a few weeks. The researchers suggest that their results add weight to evidence associating dietary factors with the risk of neuropsychiatric disorders like bipolar disorder. Yolkin's team collected demographic, health, and dietary data for over 1,100 individuals with and without psychiatric disorders. The main inclusion criteria for participants with mania was current admission to hospital for symptoms of mania or hypomania. Patients with mania had been diagnosed with different forms of bipolar disorder and schizoaffective disorder. After the human studies, Yolkin decided to look at the effect more closely by feeding nitrate-cured meats to rats. And within a couple of weeks, the rats consuming the cured meat developed locomotor hyperactivity that actually mimicked the symptoms of human mania. These animals also demonstrated changes in hippocampal pathways in the brain that had been implicated in human bipolar disorder, as well as changes in their intestinal microbiota. In contrast, a high-dieted meat prepared without nitrate had no behavioral changes or hyperactivity changes or brain changes in the control rats. The authors finished their paper with, quote, To our knowledge, this is the first study associating exposure to cured meat with a neuropsychiatric disorder. Although we feel further study is needed, individuals at risk for mania may consider limiting ingestion of added dietary nitrates, unquote. Okay, so that's bad news for you jerky lovers. Let's find some good news to even that out. There may be some news on the horizon about reversing some of the signs of aging, like wrinkles and hair loss. Dr. Kashav Singh of the University of Birmingham has now reported that both of those phenomena can be reversed in a mouse model. Last month, Singh's team reported his results in the journal Cell Death and Disease. Singh showed how a gene mutation that leads to mitochondrial dysfunction, which is known to be linked with aging and age-related diseases in humans, 
causes animals to develop skin wrinkles and extensive hair loss within weeks. When the gene mutation is switched off and normal mitochondrial function returned, the same animals lose those wrinkles and regrow thick, normal coats of fur. Now, what is probably going through your heads with those statements is big deal. How am I going to turn genes on and off in my mitochondria? And to this, Singh responds, quote, To our knowledge, this observation is unprecedented. This mouse model should provide an unprecedented opportunity for the development of preventive and therapeutic drug development strategies to augment the mitochondrial functions for the treatment of aging-associated skin and hair pathology and other human diseases in which mitochondrial dysfunction plays a significant role, unquote. Mitochondrial DNA depletion and mitochondrial dysfunction is associated with well, lots of diseases, and most of those are caused by dysfunctional mitochondrial oxidative phosphorylation, the process that generates ATP, the energy molecule that just about every cell uses for energy. A gradual decline in mitochondrial function has also been linked with aging and is known to drive age-related diseases. Studies have, for example, shown how increased mitochondrial DNA mutations lead to signs of premature aging in mice. To investigate more closely how mitochondrial depletion and mitochondrial dysfunction might play a role in aging, the team developed the mitochondrial DNA depleter mouse model in which a key nuclear mitochondrial gene is mutated by adding the antibiotic doxycycline to food or drinking water. The gene mutation effectively leads to mitochondrial depletion, including reducing mitochondrial DNA content, reducing mitochondrial gene expression, and reducing oxidative phosphorylation activity. These mitochondrial DNA depleter mice develop normally until they're about eight weeks of age. And at that point, the researchers start to administer the doxycycline, which starts to affect the mitochondria. Within four weeks, you start to get mitochondrial DNA depletion, and the animals start to develop gray thinning hair and hair loss and abnormal sebaceous glands. The mitochondrial depleter mice all developed thickened, wrinkled skin, and the wrinkles were more prominent in female mice than in male mice, in addition to slowed movements and lethargy that was reminiscent of phenotypic changes that would be expected to occur naturally as the mice aged. What's interesting is when the antibiotic treatment that turned the genes on or shut them off was withdrawn from the, the mice and their DNA was restored, the wrinkled, hairless animals gradually underwent rejuvenation. Within a month of stopping the antibiotic treatment, their skin wrinkles disappeared, their skin structure, including the hair follicles and the sebaceous glands, normalized, and they were free of inflammatory cells, and their hair grew back. Singh says that finding that mitochondria are regulators of skin aging and hair loss was unexpected. He finishes the paper with, quote, This mouse model should provide an unexpected opportunity for the development of preventative and therapeutic drug development strategies to augment the mitochondrial functions for the treatment of age-associated skin and hair pathology and other human diseases in which mitochondrial dysfunction plays a significant role, unquote. So here's the last story of the night. 
Does caffeine in your coffee or tea change your perceptions of reality? Well, yeah, it turns out, but only in a rather minor way. And as an academic who drinks way too much coffee, I find this story particularly interesting. Dr. Ezen Chu of Cornell University just published a paper this month in the Journal of Food Science that suggests that how you perceive sweetness changes with caffeine exposure. I guess that lots of you drink coffee or tea in the morning just to ensure you're wakeful for the first few hours of the day. The caffeine boosts alertness because it blocks the adenosine receptor in your brain, which promotes sleepiness. Chu says, quote, The inspiration for this study came from previous research, which found that sweet taste could be enhanced through adenosine receptors in the taste buds. We decided to investigate whether caffeine also altered the perception of sweetness in humans, unquote. To test the effect of caffeine on taste, Chu recruited 107 healthy volunteers and offered them lightly sweetened, decaffeinated coffee. To half of the cups, they added 200 milligrams of caffeine to make it strong. To the other half of the cups, they added quinine to make the coffee equally bitter in taste to the caffeinated cups. Then they asked the participants to rate the sweetness of the coffee, along with solutions of varying tastes. Those who consumed caffeine rated the sweet solutions lower than the other group, although all the other tastes were perceived the same. Chu states, quote, What surprised us was that the participants, given the caffeinated samples, still perceived the sweet solutions as less sweet even 15 to 20 minutes after they had finished their coffee. It occurred to us that if sweet-sensitive taste buds are tempered even a few minutes after drinking caffeine, it may lead some people to consume more sugar, unquote. Although the study volunteers did not know they received the caffeinated coffee, when the researchers asked them to rate their alertness, all the participants thought they were more alert, even when they drank the decaffeinated coffee. This implies a serious placebo effect confers alertness after drinking coffee. Chu concludes that, quote, based on our results, it seems that more people could try drinking decaffeinated coffee to help reduce their consumption of sweets but still get that same level of alertness, unquote. Uh, that doesn't make much sense. I mean, if you think about it, the placebo effect only works if the participants are ignorant of which treatment they got. If the coffee drinker knows it's decaffeinated, it's not going to have the same effects, is it? Uh, whatever. Choose the MD. He knows better than the rest of us. Okay. Well, that's all for me for now. As always, take care. Cut down on that jerky intake. Don't expect to be living on green Mars very soon. Don't take that replica 2 phaser pistol with you to the Continuum 15 SF Con in Melbourne next June. Cut down on that caffeine. Keep watching the skies. And I hope I've inspired some of you. Until next time, this is Jim Campanella. Always a pleasure, James. Always, my young friend. Thank you so much. That is it. That is the end of the show. Like you say, we've been gifted with people coming over to Patreon. So please keep this momentum going. Let let's. What are we on? Just give us a quick second. I'm just going to pull it up there now. Four three four. So it's not that far to four five zero. Come on, halfway there to five hundred, man. That'd be fantastic. 
Until next week, I'd just like to say, good night from me. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening. I'll get out there by and by 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 I